Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. This is episode number 46 with the author and podcast host, Pastor C.R. Wiley. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Historically, people had children for obviously a range of reasons. Having children is a marvelous thing and it's a rewarding thing. And certainly that's something that's been true historically around the world and a wide range of cultures. But there were other practical reasons for having children that are, are kind of lost upon us today. One example is uh, who's gonna care for you when you're old if you don't have children? Now today we have 401ks, we've got social security, and those things are, 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 are good for obviously you know, a number of reasons. One of those reasons being sometimes people obviously can't have kids or maybe even shouldn't have kids. And we got to think about how we're going to take care of those people. But when more and more people lose sight of the practical benefits and necessity, uh, necessity of having children for, you know, that reason, among others, well, wouldn't you know it? Uh, fewer people have them. But uh, even Social Security, even your 401k, presume a growing population of people to underwrite the assets to secure their value so that when you're old, those assets are there for you and they have value. Because that's no longer the case, because we no longer think of our our households in terms of the, the social welfare they provide, we more and more lean upon the government and and a sort of centralized approach to taking care of people and their needs. And that's the reason why socialism has become more and more of a uh, live political option in the minds, particularly of young people. Though this is primarily a podcast about religion and culture, I'm going to take a different approach this week and start with a bit of science. The good kind, not the government kind. As we all know, when water cools down and reaches 0 degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it freezes into ice. What actually happens is that ice crystals begin to form a latticework structure within the water. As the temperature continues to cool, the crystals continue to expand throughout the water, eventually making a solid block of ice. It's thought that the crystals themselves begin to form around impurities in the water, microscopic bits of foreign matter that the water molecules can grab onto to anchor the formation of the crystals. These are called nucleation sites. But it's also possible to keep water in a liquid state well below its freezing point. This is called supercooled water, and it works like this. First, you remove all the impurities, which you can do through distillation. Then, if you slowly cool the water beneath the usual freezing point, without impurities for the nucleation sites to form, the water will remain in a liquid state. 
And this is supercooled water. Now, supercooled water has a unique aspect to it. It gets into that state because of a lack of impurities or nucleation sites. What do you think happens when you introduce a nucleation site? Drop even one ice crystal into a body of supercooled water, and it freezes as an entire block almost instantaneously. The process is called snap freezing, and there are dozens of videos on YouTube about it because this is a popular grade school science project. At this point, you may be wondering why I've started off this episode with basic science. The answer is because it's the best way to illustrate something for you, something that really happened. Think of the supercooled water like a set of ideas about masculinity, fatherhood, sovereignty, and Christianity that I've been carrying around in my head. So many books, videos, tweets, talks, and conversations that I've been marinating in for years. I've had these questions. What are we all doing as men? I mean, really, where is all this effort heading? What's it all for? What is the natural end point of the Renaissance? What does it look like and why? All these questions and all this information were like a body of supercooled water I was carrying around with me all the time, and it was waiting for the introduction of a single crystal. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is C.R. Wiley, and he's a husband, father, pastor, and author of the book The Household and the War for the Cosmos. For me, this book was the crystal around which 20 years of thinking about masculinity instantly solidified. This really happened. Listening to his audiobook on a long drive, suddenly it all made sense. While some men surely want to become masters of the universe, what most of us who engage with this process are discovering is that all we want is a plot of land to call our own, a wife to love and lead and share our lives with, noble work to perform, children to pass down a legacy to, a god to worship in community, and to be left alone. It turns out there's a word for that. It's called a household. And not only does the household have significance for us as men, it has significance for God as well. As more and more men within the Renaissance turn or return to Christianity, we are discovering the ancient wisdom of the Bible and its practical relevance for our lives. The household is the central manifestation of that practical relevance, an idea so obvious to those in the pre-modern world. But for us moderns fallen so far, so fast, the household is a portrait of something we are fighting to get back to. And it is a fight. Indeed, it's a war. A war for the cosmos. And Pastor Wiley describes that in his book as well. In our conversation, we discuss the core themes of his book, namely piety, the household, and the cosmos. How the household can rebuild society. Advice for men on how to rebuild their household. Advice for women on how to awaken the building spirit in their men. And finally, Pastor Wiley's writing process and his most recent book, In the House of Tom Bombadil, about the character in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. We sometimes forget the power of words to solidify a concept for us. Many men today talk about wanting homesteads, and self-sufficiency is indeed a noble goal. But the power of Pastor Wiley's book, and his restoration of the word household, is that he gives that dream of self-sufficiency a purpose. He orients it in space and time, giving us something good, beautiful, and true to fight for. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Please give us a rating on Spotify and a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which you can do in the Apple Podcasts app. Also, please share this podcast with your friends. With your help, the Renaissance can reach more men and women. Also, speaking of podcasts, 
The Renaissance of Men podcast is now part of Podcasting 2.0, which is an effort to get away from the tech giants to censorship-proof podcasting platforms. Visit podcasterindex.com or hit the link in the description and connect with us on dozens of other apps if you want to starve the big tech beast. I recommend the full-featured Fountain FM app, where you can add Bitcoin to a Lightning wallet and stream sats while you listen, like a live stream tip jar. Finally, because this episode is short and I didn't want to interrupt the flow, I've included a bit of exciting news at the very end about new ways to get involved with the Renaissance. Stick around, because I think you'll like what you're going to hear. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, an author whose ideas have impacted my vision of masculinity and who I hope will impact yours as well, Pastor C.R. Wiley. C.R. Wiley, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, Will, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for asking. You know, I, I uh, listened to your book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, an audiobook a couple weeks ago, and uh, I just found it to be an incredibly moving work that I think speaks to the heart of, uh, of what many men um, are asking about and thinking about, both in the men's movement as a whole, the quote-unquote manosphere, but then also in many of the Christian men I, I talk to, like, what is this really all about? And uh, I know you've spoken very movingly about your past on other podcasts, so we'll skip past all that because I really just want to start digging into the notion of uh, what it means to be a householder, what the household is. Um, but let's start in talking about the cosmos, which I think uh, is a word that we don't really have a great understanding of today and that you broke it down um, so marvelously in the book. Yeah, I'm glad to talk about that. I want to just kind of launch into it. Yeah, please jump on in. Sure. Well, I think, you know, when we hear the word cosmos or cosmos, we, we think about, uh, you know, uh, the PBS television shows, uh, sure. And uh, we think about outer space and stuff like that. But, um, that's a fairly, uh, con- you know, contemporary modern use of the term or the word. Um, the word that we translate, uh, into the English word world in Bible is actually cosmos. And, mm-hmm. um, that's often lost on folks. But the, uh, the meaning behind it is not so much uh, that we are referring to a place, although it includes that, but an order of things. That's mm-hmm. really the, 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 the fundamental concept. So there is a kind of reality in which we dwell, and we have to be in some sense uh, harmony with it. If we're not, then uh, we're the ones who suffer, not the cosmos. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, now... What's happened because of, you know, kind of advances in our ability to measure things and see things far away is, is we, we, we see that the physical universe is much larger than we, we knew. Um, but even our ancestors knew it was a very, very large thing. Mm-hmm. But they understood that the physical sort of arrangements uh, had a kind of corresponding spiritual uh, sort of, uh, I guess, significance. And so, you know, even when we think about prepositions, like when we think about fact that we can't really talk about anything of value or meaning without referring to up and down, you know, you know, time past, time in the future, things like that. It's, it gives us a sense that we still live in a, in a meaningful uni- uh, universe that we have to uh, refer to in order to make sense of things. So for example, right. if I were to say, um, I really look up to him, well, does mm-hmm. that mean I'm literally looking up to the guy? <laughs> Is he <laughs> right. just a lot taller than me? No, sure. we're, we're saying something about his moral stature uh, or his achievements and stuff like that. So when we think about, for example, um, 
how the universe is ordered, the cosmos is ordered, it's, it's ordered vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we think about the kind of the emphasis that we have in the world today, we think about the horizontal. Everybody's supposed to be right. equal. No one's supposed to be more important than anybody else, that kind of thing. But we all know deep down inside that that's not the case. We, we say all men are born equal, but then some people can actually dunk a basketball and other people can't, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> some people right. can, can are great at math and other people aren't, you know, it's the, there are differences between us and we have to recognize discriminate. There's another word that we mm-hmm. uh, have lost an ability to think about kind of rationally. <laughs> we, we have to discriminate and make judgments. And when we, when we do that, we order things in hierarchies. So anyway, all that to say, we live in a cosmos that's ordered in a hierarchy. At the very top, you know, we have the things that are truly good in and of themselves and ultimately God. God is at the very top. And then things are kind of, you know, ordered in descending uh, manner down. Now, human beings are made in the image of God. So in one sense, we really are equal. Uh, but in another sense, as we order our society, uh, there are people who have certain gifts and other people who have different gifts. And those gifts are often uh, biological in character. You know, mm-hmm. there is, you know, the gift of man, manhood, the gift of womanhood. And these gifts are intended to be used uh, to build each other up, not you know, in a kind of competitive sort of antagonistic spirit uh, at each other, but intended yes. to, to work together. So that's the framework. And uh, so uh, in antiquity, all this was common sense. I mean, among <laughs> pagans and Christians and Jews, everybody understood we live in a cosmos. The question wasn't uh, so much, is the uh, cosmos uh, ordered vertically, but who's on top? <laughs> that was <laughs> right. the big question. That was a big question. Because who's on top? is the one who determines how the rest of the cosmos is supposed to be ordered and work. Mm-hmm. And that was the big uh, debate between Christians and pagans in the empire. The pagans said Caesar's on top and Christians said, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is on top, Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, that was the point at which there was conflict. But anyways, the cosmos is, is what we live in and mm-hmm. it, and whether we're in touch with it or not, we'll, um, you know, determine how we live our lives and how well we'll live our lives. But I, I, I guess I should add one more thing at this point. Even though we live in, in, a, in, a, in a world that is kind of living uh, sort of um, in rebellion to this way of thinking, we still live in a cosmos and we order our lives by it. So because we believe that the cosmos is just a kind of a chaotic sort of... Uh, set of collisions that have materialism. led to yeah, materialism, we, we consequently uh, order our lives that way. And that's why so many people are messed up in the ways that modern people get messed up. Now, people in the past were messed up too. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. there are particularly modern ways to be messed up. And they have to do in part with how we think about reality and the, the, the universe we live in. So let's talk about this vertical dimension a little bit. I remember you talking about that, that there's no up in the cosmos. It's all just level and flat and, and uh, you know, one set of things is equal and there's no greater than anything else. But, you know, the, 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 our lives, um, our experience of reality loses quite a bit with nothing to look up to right. besides the state, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's become uh, kind of the only thing that we can recognize as having um, you know, legitimate authority, mm-hmm. uh, the state, uh, we look to the state to order our lives because 
were afraid of the consequences if, if the state wasn't there. And, and also, you know, we, we, we think that the state kind of imposes order on things on a sort of chaotic, you know, sort of meaningless uh, set of things. The state mm-hmm. superimposes meaning on things. So I think, you know, there really is a religious dimension to secularism. Secularists are blind to it, mm-hmm. but uh, they behave in a very uh, pious way with regard to the dictates of the state. You know, they, mm-hmm. they think we should just all go along all the time. Um, and the, that was evident uh, really in a, in a significant way during the pandemic. You know, there were just some people that kind of freakishly, uh, you know, devoted to the, the rules that are being handed down from on high. Still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that actually, um, that raises a question that I've kind of had in my mind is that, um, you know, when, when the pandemic was going on, you had a lot of people who um, they did say pledge fealty or pledge allegiance to the state and its uh, media, scientific, you know, propaganda arms, whatever the dictates came from, whatever three letter, letter agencies. That's what we're doing, and that's the and that's the highest authority. Meanwhile, you had people who were of faith, various various kinds of faith, but primarily of Christians, saying like, "No, our our um, our loyalty, our allegiance is, is to Christ," and I was one of those. And um, but. I, I, Christ didn't really hand out too much information about disease, right? right, right so it right. seemed like, I mean, you know, we're completely aligned. But so I, I sometimes in my own mind had trouble squaring that. Like, yes, there are these terrestrial authorities that say these things are going on, but I'm not going to just listen to them at a default. I'm going to listen to what I consider to be the authority, but the authority doesn't make comments on everyday headlines in that yeah. way, or at yeah. least my, my experience. So sure. maybe you could square that circle. Yeah, well, squaring circles is tough. (laughs) (laughs) Square the triangle, maybe. (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, I'm with you. I mean, I have, uh, uh, I'm like one degree removed from both Fauci and uh, uh, Francis Collins. I know people who know them both. And and apparently these are, they're decent people. (laughs) They're not like people sitting, you know, in some like, you know, room trying to figure out ways to take over the world, you know, (laughs) steepling (laughs) their fingers. That's right. Yeah, they're they're trying their best. But uh, at at the same time, there are certain boundaries that we uh, should uh, be pretty careful don't get crossed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was one of the things that concerned me. Uh, There was a kind of, uh, I guess, uh, there was just too too much deference to uh, kind of the the state of the science at the moment. And anyone who has any background in the sciences knows that the science is something that's, you know, sort of in process. It's stuff, right. it's something that's being developed and we're always, we should be anyway, uh, willing to revisit things that we think we know uh, with new, mm-hmm. when we have new data. That seemed to be thrown out the window, or at least it seemed to be that we weren't willing to concede that. And I think it was partly because they were afraid that things would just kind of like break down and there'd be chaos. Um, but so you ended up with this situation where kind of the administrators, the administrative state was trying to sound more sure than it was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, and then now everything's kind of coming out and we're just, and we're saying, well, well, you think that you, uh, you know, sort of strengthened your authority. You actually weakened it Mm -hmm. uh, through this whole thing. So now I think many people are like, you fooled me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, I think right. there's a lot of that right now. I certainly feel that way. I, after about six weeks, I, I smelled a rat <laughs> right. you know, back, back in 2020. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that this uh, need for, you know, uh, 
an infallible authority is kind of scripted into us. Uh, mm. But um, that infallible authority is God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we don't always know what God wants. You know, sometimes his will is uh, hard to discern. But at least we should be able to say that in human affairs, everything should be qualified. You know, we should be able to say, you know, as best as you know, this is the best course of action as far as you can tell. Okay, say it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, anyway. Yeah, the authoritarian angle of this cannot be questioned. You'll be censored if you ask questions or canceled or whatever um, sort of reflects that. No, you. it's an attempt to impose ultimate authority on people when all it, it does is just kind of reveal that the emperor has no clothes. Like if your position is so unassailable that I can't even question it, maybe there are some problems with your position that I'm not supposed to ask about. Right, right. And I think it, that's what we're learning. Mm-hmm. So this, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned another word um, in one of your answers that uh, I wanted to touch on as well before we move on to the notion of a household. You talked about piety, right. and uh, and uh, Jonathan West, who introduced us, uh, said that one of his favorite talks of yours, which I haven't gotten a chance to listen to, but which I'll link in in the show notes, was "Make Men Pious Again." And uh, so I, I'm curious to hear more uh, more from you about that because that was also uh, one of the chapters of the book, particularly in the beginning, that was like really touched on something that I think really resonates with so many men, um, you know, related to what are their responsibilities to their fathers, to their lineages and to their children, to their grandchildren. And that's summed up in this word that we don't really have anymore, which is, which is piety. And it goes beyond that as well. Yeah. Well, that talk was originally written for a conference. Uh, and, um, that was a, a really great event that I was honored to participate in. And, uh, uh, the talk, uh, centered on the Aeneid, believe it or not, and mm-hmm. how the Aeneid um, can be uh, understood or should be understood. So if, any, if you know, the listeners aren't familiar with the Aeneid, the Aeneid is essentially Virgil's great epic poem about the origins of the Roman people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, written in the spirit of Homer uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad and all that. And what you have is kind of a recapitulation of the Odyssey, and what occurs in the story is, uh, and this is something that I think most people don't uh, know, the Romans believed that they were descended from the Trojans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the war, the Trojan War with the, the, you know, the big wooden horse and the Greeks and the Trojans and all that. Anyway, so, uh, you know, the, the, they, they, the Romans really believed that they were descended from the Trojans. And uh, so when, when, the, when the Romans actually conquered, you know, the Greek city states, it was sort of like payback in their minds. <laughs> mm-hmm. it was, you know, we don't, we don't, we, we that's lost on us, but um, <laughs> the nuance. Yeah. Yeah. And, but anyway, so the, the principal character in the Aeneid is Aeneas and he is a demigod. So that means that he's got a, you know, one parent's a human being and the, and the other parent is a Greek God mm-hmm. or a Roman God. So in his case, uh, it's his mother who's the goddess and it's Venus. Can you imagine mm-hmm. that? Just imagine yeah. if Venus was your mother. <laughs> Anyways. It's a lot. Yeah. So she loves her boy mm-hmm. and she wants him to survive and she wants him to, to, to be, 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 to be great. And so uh, the, the story opens in the Aeneid where Aeneas is in Troy. The Trojan horse has already, uh, you know, been brought into the city. Right. The city is now in flames. There's fighting in the streets and, uh, it's pretty clear that the Trojans are, are going to lose this, lose the fight. And at that point in the story, uh, his mother Venus appears to him and tells him to pack up and head out. Uh, mm. And so he goes home and his father uh, Anchises 
uh, is a cripple. Maybe that's what happens to you when you, you when you have a relationship with Venus. So you just you can't. <laughs> yeah, you're not going <laughs> to get you, that for free. Yeah, you, you're wiped out, baby. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, exactly. So uh, his father is a cripple. He's bedridden, and his father says, "Nope, not leaving. Not leaving." Uh, anyways, uh, at this mm. point, um, uh, Aeneas's wife and son enter the room, and there's this really touching scene where you know. His wife is begging him to 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 save them and save their son. And at that moment, there is this uh, sign that appears, and it's a it's a flame flaming crown appears on his son's head. Ilius is the name of the boy, mm-hmm. and uh, so he realizes that this is a this is a, 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 an indication that his son is going to become a great king. And uh, so he's, he, he at that point says, well, we got to go. And his father Anchises asks for another sign. There's like a thunderclap and a, and a meteor flashes across the sky. And he's like, okay, yeah, Jupiter's favored us. It's time yeah. to go. That'll so, work. Yeah. So what happens is that Aeneas uh, and his, his like moniker in the whole story is Pius Aeneas. Mm-hmm. So Pius Aeneas mm-hmm. takes his father and puts him on his back. And then takes his son Ilius by the hand, and then in his other hand he's got a sword, and he literally leads them out that way, leads them out of the city. And uh, later, much later, during the days of the Republic and the Empire, uh, the Romans would put that image on their coins. Mm-hmm. And the coin, and what it what is intended to say is that this is the responsibility, you know, that uh, that a man has to care for his ancestors, his father, and and to honor those who went before him and to care for those uh, to whom he's handing over his estate, his, his son. And that's piety. So piety in uh, the first century, and this was something that uh, Romans, Greeks, Jews, everyone agreed on, was doing your duty. It, was meant, it meant recognizing your benefactors, uh, your benefactors, you know, obviously your parents, your civil authorities, but uh, most supremely, the gods or God. And so it was not like an emotional thing uh, necessarily. Like today, when we talk about piety, we, we sometimes, I think uh, if we're familiar with the term, think of like a little old lady, maybe with, uh, you know, her devotional literature, you know, praying. It's not, that's, that's pious, but Mm -hmm. for a Roman, it was, it it could be a very manly virtue. It meant fighting for your family. So piety was fighting. It included everything. It included, you know, working for a living. It included paying your respects to your elders. It included, you know, making sacrifices uh, to the gods. It included fighting for your family and for your city. All of that was piety mm-hmm. because it, the, the controlling uh, sort of concept was do your duty. That was the thing. So how does that how does that translate then? Because there's a bunch of different pieces where I can see how that would fit, obviously, into Christianity in a Christian framework with, you know, God the Father and 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 being piety and being pious, you know, towards our our lineages. Well, actually, let's let's start with let's start with towards our personal lineages because I think one of the things that this generation of men and possibly the previous generation as well is really struggling with is I think that somewhere along the line in the middle of the 20th century the chain got broken, right? Um, and and so a lot of men are disconnected from their their fathers. Maybe they had stepfathers, or maybe they had distant, absent, or absent fathers. Um, what was it? Um, I listened to the um, the Canon Press Father Hunger talk, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think it was Tim Tim Bailey talked about um, absent fathers, 
abdicated fathers and abusive fathers. Right. And that seems to kind of be the thing. Like the men that I speak to, very few of them have a father that wasn't one of those three things, at least one of those three things. So in the spirit of piety with, with men honoring their fathers, what if their fathers were dishonorable dishonorable men? Um, and then that chain has been broken from from their past. They don't even know who their grandfathers were potentially. Yeah, I think that's a very important observation, and that's certainly the case for me as well. So mm-hmm. that's um, right. I think I think the thing to 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 do in, in that respect is to see yourself as the beginning of a new line. For one thing, mm-hmm. I think you should you should still you know pay your respects as best you can without lying. <laughs> sure. You know, but at at the same time, I think you should kind of see yourself maybe in the spirit of Abraham. So, like the story of Abraham, you have a man who is told to leave his father's household. And from that point on, uh, whenever God identifies himself, he begins with Abraham. He doesn't begin with Terah, his father. He begins with, with, with Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. Mm-hmm. So a, a household can have a founder, you know, and in the case of Aeneas, you know, he is founder of a new house. Um, you know, even though he had a father that he, he loved and respected, uh, he's, he's starting a new thing. And so I think uh, we can we can think of it in those terms. Uh, we can see ourselves as a, as a, a new beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so the uh, the opportunity to kind of break from the past and say, you know, what's done is done, and to still perhaps embody the best of what we sense may have come from our from our gen- genetic lineage and start fresh as much as we can. Right. That's, I think that's the thing that we have to do because we don't want to find ourselves. Uh, papering over things or lying about things uh, that were actually pretty bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, um, so then how do we extend this notion of piety? Um, let, let's connect it to God now as well, because in the Romans they were, they were talking about an, perhaps ancestor worship and the gods. So we also need, and, and if we're talking as, as men today, reconnecting with our past or starting fresh and building and building a new house, what does it look for men today? Cause I know many men are coming to the Christian faith, um, which is, something that I've been a part of in the past couple of years as well. What does it look like to be pious in a Christian sense, also being willing to fight? Because that's a question that I hear many men asking. Yeah, I think that um, the, the Greek word that we find in the New Testament is eusebio, and it means exactly the same thing as pius in the Latin. So we're actually called to this. So we were told, of course, in Scripture to honor our, our, our father and mother. Now, that can be a father and mother in the faith as well. You know, Paul referred to himself as a father to Timothy, and uh, I think that there's a kind of piety that we can exercise uh, when it comes to our spiritual parents, those mm-hmm. who have been important to us. Uh, but that, but I think too that you know, ultimately, all good things uh, come from God. Mm-hmm. So we, we of course reject uh, the the gods of antiquity, uh, but. Uh, what we what we do uh, is when we do that is uh, we don't leave it empty. We we recognize the true God, and uh, you know express our gratitude to Him. Then there's uh, when it, when it comes to this matter of um, fighting for our families, there's you know a I think a set of uh, realities that kind of are again kind of layered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the physical fight can can be part of this. We, we should be in a position to defend our families physically if we need to be, uh, need to do so. But there's an ongoing fight that's spiritual in character as well. So uh, we should see ourselves as warriors 
serving our families through the spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in. And we certainly are surrounded by hostile forces in every you know, sort of sphere of life. Yes. So then, so maybe this is, we can touch a little bit on this notion of servant, servant leadership and how that's kind of a little inverted, I think, from what the, the picture you're portraying. Yeah, I think that leadership is leadership <laughs> in, <laughs> right. in, the, in the sense that, you know, you, you know, a leader says, this is the way we're going, this is what we need to do, and that kind of thing. It's taking responsibility, you know. Now, in terms of, am I serving people through my leadership? Of course. Yes. But it doesn't mean that I'm sitting around with, uh, you know, my, you know, wringing my hands saying, what do you want me to do? Um, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm exercising some, you know, uh, leadership by, you know, thinking and being proactive and taking action and, and doing the things that are going to be in the best interest of the, of the family. I think that um, what some of the people who have been advocates of, quote, servant leadership had in mind that was actually something that, that's worth considering is that sometimes leadership can be exercised in a selfish way. So, you right. know, if, if, if it's all about your ego and your ego trip, then yeah, that's not a good thing. But I think that when you exercise leadership in a way that's uh, you know, uh, truly in the interest of everyone in under your care, then they'll recognize your authority as legitimate and, mm-hmm. and not call it into question. Now, they might mm-hmm. call into question your judgments every once in a while if they think that maybe a better course of action would have been something different. But uh, at least uh, from the standpoint of the moral outlook, your leadership is not being uh, questioned. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to exercise leadership in a way that benefits everyone under the house, household's uh, shelter, household mm-hmm. shelter. So I think that's the thing to keep in mind. And sometimes, sometimes, it, you know, you don't have time to explain yourself. You just say, just do what I say. <laughs> right. <laughs> we got to, we got to get this thing done. Uh, other times, you know, you can explain and it's always good if, if you uh, can, can do that, particularly if you're trying to raise kids or, you know, that uh, are, you know, going to be intelligent and exercise judgment themselves well someday. And then in your wife, you want it, you want to be, um, you know, understood uh, by your wife and why you're making the choices that you're making. Yeah. And that's a notion of, of childhood piety as well as if, as if you are not lucky enough or blessed enough to have a father who was in your life or, or who had a noble presence in your life, let's say, well, if you exercise noble authority um, and, and, and her the right spirit of being a leader and a servant in your leadership, you can set the example for that house to come and give your children something to be pious towards perhaps. Yeah. You know, my kids are all grown and they're very uh, respectful to me. Um, you know, I have great relationships with them and uh, um, they're all doing great. And so I'm very happy for them. And um, you know, the relationships are, are strong. Um, and, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and it's certainly different than uh, you know, what I witnessed in my own childhood. Hmm. We'll talk a little, let's talk a little bit about, about that. So, so that I can make sure to communicate it accurately, or you can communicate it yourself just a bit about your background. Cause it is actually quite interesting how you came to faith and, and uh, certainly many men I think would relate to um, your upbringing and the, the ABC upbringing. And I'll let you <laughs> share what that acronym means. Well, sure. I mean, I, uh, I was pretty much on my own from the time I was about 11 years old. Um, my father was out of the picture uh, at that point. Uh, and then even before that, the influence, uh, was not all that good. Uh, he was a Scientologist and, uh, my mother was in and out of mental institutions that was kind of into, you know, sort of, um, 
she she was addicted to to various psychotropic drugs and but anyway so i was awarded the state for a period of time pretty much on my own like i said and it was through the influence of a friend uh whose father was a pastor that i came into the christian faith and uh, so uh through the that little blue collar church that uh my friends past or my friend's father pastored uh there were a lot of uh, people i got to see who were just blue collar kind of salt of the earth people kind of very norman rockwell kind of kind of world that was uh very different than the world that i had known uh to that point and so they were you know they they were examples to me um and uh of how to live like a man and um uh you know do so in a way that uh benefited the the women and the children in their lives so that was that was how how i uh came to kind of see things differently than I would have seen it if it hadn't been for the, you know, the, that, that church and the conversion that I experienced uh, when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ABC acronym stands yeah, for yeah. anything but Christian. Yeah. yeah. Anything but Christian. Yeah. I was my, pretty much my father. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, so, so, so as you, um, so I, I want to get to the notion of households, but I'm actually really interested. So, so you were introduced to the faith through the, the, um, through the, through this, this, this house that you were a part of essentially what was the journey like becoming a pastor and a writer? I mean, you must be no more surprised than almost anyone to see where you've ended up in a sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have any aspirations to pastoral ministry. It was something I, I, uh, you know, didn't want to be involved with at all. You know, I was, uh, I had, I had a desire to be, a, a, a actually a comic book artist <laughs> and that was my dream and I was, and I pursued it. And so I was, uh, you know, resistant to, uh, any kind of, um, you know, pastoral or, you know, ministry, uh, kind of, uh, vocation. Uh, and so I fought that. I actually think that that's a pretty good sign that you may be called a ministry uh, that, uh, you know, it's the, it's the people who are eager to do the job that either don't understand the nature of the work or shouldn't be trusted in it. <laughs> and you think about it, you think about the people in scripture that none of them wanted the job, but anyway, uh, you, 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 you have, um, you know, that, that was kind of the, the world I came out of. And, uh, but I, I mean, I'm very glad to be involved in ministry now, but I've done other things. You know, I've been a, a, uh, landlord and a college professor. I taught philosophy for years and, um, I've also done some, uh, you know, building contracting. I've been a contractor. So I've had a range of experiences and been very grateful for the, the range of experiences, but, you know, writing, I, you know, I, if you'd asked me even as a kid, you know, can you ever imagine yourself writing a book? I said, I can't even read a book. You know, <laughs> I, I wasn't a reader. I, I don't think I finished my first book, if, you know, with all the way, you know, you know, in terms of like, you know, anything more than a children's picture book until I was, you know, well into my teen years. And uh, I was very proud of myself when I finally finished a book. <laughs> but oh, congratulations. I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't like English. I, did, I wasn't any good at it. And, uh, I didn't have any interest in writing at all. And it wasn't until I was uh, actually in my first graduate program that I, that I, that I entertained the idea that maybe I could write. And I had some experiences writing that were great in the sense that everybody's, everything I wrote ended up being published. It was one of those weird things where like, again, I didn't want the job and then then it (laughs) kind of goes well. (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, that's sort of a, that's a surprising thing. It's like most people who, who write, they they feel called to it but it's a it's a painful process every every step of the way it's like this is not something that i would choose for myself but i cannot do it 
Well, I think that's right. I mean, for me, inertia is the biggest thing to get over every time. So like when I get up in the morning, I, I, I find it much more uh, pleasant to read something, somebody else's book than to write my own. You know, writing my own book is, is uh, a lot of work and, and making yourself, you know, actually put the pen to the paper and start writing things out. That, that uh, it usually takes me about 15 minutes to half an hour to really finally get into the groove uh, yeah. when I get going. Do you have like a particular process? I'm always curious about writers' processes, if they have rituals or whatever they do to to get themselves into the space of writing. Well, I do. I mean, I try to set aside the mornings for my intellectual work. Uh, I never eat anything before lunch. I have a couple of cups of black coffee and that's it. And then I get into it. Um, and the thing I have to get over is I, I usually pick up a book that's fairly challenging to read and... Um, then the challenge is to put it down and start writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. One more chapter. Just one more chapter. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I was like, okay, I got it. So um, then I start writing. And then when I try to, I try to write five handwritten pages a day. So like when I'm working on a book or something like that, then if I feel like I've hit, hit my goal, reached my goal, then I, then I can put the pen down and not feel any guilt. Uh, no remorse. No, I, even if there's, really rotten, terrible writing. I'll just say it's done. And then after I get the first draft done, then I go back and, uh, you know, rework it. I'm, a, I'm like a 10 draft guy. Uh, there are some guys who are like, like one draft, two draft guys. So like some, like my, some of my friends, I just, they just uh, put out so much stuff. Like you mentioned Doug, Doug Wilson. Uh, Doug's a friend of mine. I asked Doug one time, I said, how many books do you work on at any given time? <laughs> yes, all of them. Five. He has five <laughs> books going on at any given time, wow. and uh, I was like, you know, I'm like a I'm one or two book at the time kind of guy. And yeah. uh, I remember another another time, uh, Tony Eslin's a friend of mine. He wrote, uh, in fact, he 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 wrote something at the I think for for the preface or the introduction to. He did, yeah. And I asked him. I said, I mean, you're just amazing, Tony. I mean, how how do you how much are you like a one draft guy? He said, no, I'm a two draft guy. I, and I said, I'm like a 10 draft guy. <laughs> I'm right. never, I'm never happy with what I've written. Uh, even after it's been published, you know, if I pick up a book that I wrote, you know, a couple years ago and I read, I said, Oh man, I should have put it this way. You know? Okay. <laughs> anyway, isn't so that's, that how me. It, that's me. Isn't that how it always is? We go back to our earlier work and cringe like, Oh, how could yeah. I thought it was so good at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, even then I didn't feel like it was all that great, but by the time I'm like, at a point where I feel like I'm ready to let it alone, I'm I'm so tired of it. I don't right. even want to pick it up anymore and look at it. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> I'm ready to move on from it. I've put as much energy as I can into it. I have to I have to let it go. I have to ship it, as they say. Right, right. So your so uh, your two books. You've got Man of the House and Household in the War of the Cosmos. You talk about this notion of of the productive household, and so I want to talk about that because um, I had had parallel thoughts, let's say, that one of the great uh, backwards blessings, I guess you might say, of COVID is that it drove everyone back into their homes and recreated the notion of like, we don't have to commute to go to an office anymore. We can actually be home with our family. And there's something very powerful about that, rediscovering the way life was before the Industrial Revolution. And so I had I had put those pieces together going back to like the 1850s or something like that, that the home used to be um, the center of economic production. But then you linked it to something far deeper um, taking place during the biblical era, which I think was more profound and important, and that I think has real lessons for us today, which is the nature of those two books. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a kind of a, a 
practical uh, dimension to things. And I talk about that in that book, uh, Man of the House. And then I try to tie it to where I, or I make the connection to the cosmos or the larger reality in you know the second book, The Household and Wolf of the Cosmos. I felt like I needed to, to, to do that to help people realize that uh, it's important to fight for the household, even though we may find ourselves in a world where we don't have to make our households productive. We can actually live, you know, in a in what I call the recreational household, where you just it's just basically a home entertainment center. You know, you do you do all your productive work someplace else, and then you go come home and crash. Um, and and you know that's what the house is for is just watching television or Netflix and surfing the web and and eating Chinese food. You know, that's been delivered. <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing. So well, so. Oh, sorry. So, I mean, this, but the household can have far greater significance than I think most men are accustomed to experiencing it. Yeah. Well, in antiquity, it was understood to be kind of the basic building, building block of uh, a civilization. And it still is. Uh, the, the, the problem that we have is that we live in a world that's lost touch with it uh, and on its, you know, it's, it, in terms of its meaning and even in terms of its sort of usefulness. And consequently, we have a lot of... Um, social pathologies that we're dealing with uh, mm. in our world. And, it, and, w- and we'll have to recover it at some point um, right. if we're going to have a healthy civilization. Um, the, the, the alternative is just unhuman. And I mm-hmm. think that, you know, communism uh, is, an, is an attempt to create a, a world without the household. I think that, um, you know, what we see in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is sort of a capitalist approach to how you can have a world, a civilization without a household. But in both the cases, you know, we think about like 1984 and Brave New World, who would really want to live in those places? Um, they're, they're ugly. And, uh, but we, we can see how uh, the institutions of the modern world encourage the, us in those directions. Um, so you have to fight to uh, resist those uh, forces uh, and to preserve the household, even against the you know well-meaning efforts of people who don't understand what households are for. So, what are households for? Well, I think households uh, are are uh, the first institution, and mm-hmm. uh, they are established by God. So, what we see in the Garden of Eden in Scripture is the establishment of the first household, and um, individualism. Um, is fruitless uh, in uh, not just uh, the sense that, uh, you know, Adam was fruitless without a wife in the sense of not having children, but fruitless in the sense that um, we are designed to, uh, by God, to to have uh, these deep binding commitments to one another uh, to carry us through life. And uh, when they are uh, working the right way, these relationships, uh, husband, wife, children, parents, um, we're fruitful in ways that we cannot be, you know, in, in, as individuals. That's mm-hmm. why, you know, we see in scripture, you know, uh, you know, it was not good that the man was alone. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we're made for that. And it's, it's, it's in that, in the, in the relationship of, you know, that the relationships we know in a household can't be, um, you can't substitute like your work relationships for the, for, it, mm-hmm. for those things. Um, you know, I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. I'm not just uh, an individual. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 my self-understanding uh, so, situates me in a family, in a household. And I think that that's true for everybody. And when we try to, when we, when we, you know, m- you know, move away from that, like we are attempting to do in popular culture today, we end up with just lots of damaged people. Mm-hmm. We have pe- people's households, men and women, you know, like you say, it was an entertainment center, recreation center, or a war zone, potentially, you know, if, if, if it doesn't go well, go ahead. Yeah. Or just a place where you're all by yourself. Right. Or you're, you're, you're living in some kind of fantasy world where you're experimenting on your own body and cutting things off and adding things, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's just nuts. Mm-hmm. How can reestablishing, how can reestablishing the house, household provide a bulwark against some of the worst excesses of communism, neo-Marxism, globalism? Like why does it actually begin in the household? Well, like I said, it's the first institution. And so authority uh, is, le- is understood to be legitimate in a household because of the way in which love uh, informs it. So, you know, the relationship that I have to my, with my children when, they're, when, they're, when, the, when those relationships are ordered properly, you know, I am a father and consequently I have authority, but I'm not just an authority figure in some kind of abstract sense. I'm physically connected to my children um, and I love them and they love me. And that informs sort of the function that we see in a household. And so every other institution in society is in some sense derivative uh, of this. So like when we think about the fathers of the community, you know, we think about like the founding fathers, we refer to them as fathers, you know, (laughs) because there's some sense in which uh, they are deriving their role in the larger community from the legitimacy of the father's role in his home. We could talk about mothers in the same way. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, when a woman is a mother to, to sort of like, uh, you know, all, and everyone who comes around her, you know, my wife is that sort of woman. She's just a mother wherever she is. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, people, uh, you know, acknowledge her, not only her love and care, but her authority. It's not mm-hmm. a coercive authority. It's a moral authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and um Consequently, you know, people listen to her, uh, they take her advice. It doesn't mean that they always do what she says or uh, she advises, but, but they can't take her advice lightly. Mm-hmm. They can't just dismiss it uh, because they know that she cares about them and that she's, she's actually, uh, you know, doing what she can that is in the best interest of, the, you know, the people she's talking to, even though she's not physically their mother. Mm-hmm. So... Um, anyway, so all of, uh, I, you know, when the household breaks down, it has uh, kind of a a set of unforeseen consequences throughout society. Mm -hmm. Pastor Michael Foster, his new book, It's Good to Be a Man, he talks about gravitas. And as you're talking about the moral authority of of you as a father and your wife as a mother, I I can't help but connect it to some notion of gravitas, which I also can't help to connect to some notion of piety as well, that, that, that part of a man's gravitas does have to do with his connection to something beyond himself, maybe not necessarily his lineage, but something something that he serves beyond himself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if it's just about me, uh, and it's just the fact that I'm bigger and stronger than you are, well, then you're going to, you know, do, maybe do what I say, but just because you have to, not because there's any kind of moral claim that I, that I represent. And it's not me, I'm not representing me, I'm representing something bigger than myself. So like when it comes to like, uh, 
the work of a father saying disciplining his children. If the kids think it's just about your ego, they may do what you want, but as soon as they're out of the house, forget it. But if they, if they know that you, you are a subject to a higher authority yourself and that you're trying to represent the truth, um, you know, in all of its painful implications sometimes, <laughs> then, you know, there's a sense in which, okay, it's not about him. This is just about what's right and what's wrong. And that's why it's also really important for, say, an authority figure like a father or a mother when they find, when they're, when they are in the wrong to, to note it, and to, to say, hey, you know, I was wrong about that. Please forgive me. That doesn't undermine your authority. It actually further strengthens it. Unless you're like a real dope and you keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Totally different. Yeah. Eventually they're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and if you're, if you're sincere and you're trying to, you're trying your best and, and you're, and you're improving, then your kids will, you know, I think most of the time, uh, you know, receive that well. Now let's connect this now to the cosmos. So the first institution, um, and we're talking about higher notions of truth. How does a well-ordered household, um, contribute in the war for the cosmos. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, I think that's one of the things that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Ephesians. So uh, we shy away from the household codes today because, you know, they're politically incorrect. Uh, and uh, certainly we don't need to bring back slavery. You know, I'm not saying that we, we, we need that in that's order not. to fulfill the household codes. Right. But um, nevertheless, there is a sense in which husbands and wives reflect a larger order. And that larger order, Paul tells us, is Christ in the church. So, uh, a, 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 you know, a husband represents Christ. He's not Christ. The wife knows that. Right. <laughs> Everybody knows that. You'll, you'll find out pretty quick if she thinks otherwise. <laughs> That's right. But you're playing a role. And likewise, the wife has a role. She's not the church, obviously. And in another sense, she is. But so am I, you know, <laughs> but, but she's representing uh, the church. And so in, in a sense, we're playing out in miniature the story of the world. And that means that, uh, you know, there's a certain scriptedness to things. Now, we have a lot of freedom within that framework to kind of play our roles. Um, you know, uh, when we think about, say, uh, roles in like a film uh, or in a play, you know, different actors and actresses. Uh, can take the roles and give them, you know, something of their own character, you know, uh, but at the same time, it's pretty obvious they're playing a role. So there's a way that I play the role. There's the way you play the role. There's a way your wife plays a role or my wife plays a role. And that's fine. That's great. But in the same sense, it's not like uh, we're making it up as we go along. There are these roles that we're reflecting and uh, it's scripted into the nature of things. So we're, you know, biologically uh, and, uh, even uh, eschatologically in the sense of the future of the human race. There's, there's a sense in which we are embodying something in the present moment that's a much bigger story than ourselves. So what we're experiencing in some sense as discovery is really a, a rediscovery. It's yeah. always there. That's right. That's right. So, you know, it's like when we think about the fact that Christ is Lord, uh, we don't make him Lord. He is Lord. Uh, what we do is recognize his lordship. We say, oh, of course, you know, I need to submit to him. And in the same way, it's not as though uh, when we uh, follow these household codes, we're creating something. It's just we're kind of re representing it to the world. And it should be something beautiful. You know, when people see it and it's working right, 
people should admire it and, and uh, should uh, um, appreciate it and want to want to uh, enter into the same thing themselves. Now, these are these are the the household co- household codes as articulated by Paul, or own individual household code household codes, or perhaps both. Well, I think both. I mean, it, there are going to be some things that you know are going to characterize your house and versus my house, but there are things that we have in common. So, like there are there's mm-hmm. a role for husbands, there's a role for wives, and that kind of thing. And how they get worked out in particular situations is going to, you know, kind of uh, depend on the people involved. So I was right. just, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, who's an elder in my church. And we were just talking about our wives. And, and, uh, one of the things that we both kind of noted is that, um, you know, we probably, uh, shouldn't have our wives be our administrative assistants. Probably not. <laughs> probably, no. You know, cause there, there's a sense in which, um, uh, even though they may want to do that, uh, you know, there's a sense in which maybe someone else would be a better person person for that thing. And like, for example, I don't want to, you know, be, you know, uh, sort of laying in bed and having my wife go through the, the list of things to do tomorrow. You know, right. I just want to go to bed. <laughs> That's right. But in, and then there are situations where like in, in our case, we've got a, a, a few different uh, businesses that we run out of our home. And uh, my wife has her own uh, business that she has. And, uh, you know, I'm supportive and, and so forth. But I'm very happy for her to do her thing, you know. Sure. So, as a pastor, you you um, you minister to a lot of individuals, men and women, but particularly for men, you know, a lot of men have been waking up over the course of the past couple of years, let's say, and recognizing that things are not right in their world, they're not right in their nation, they're not right in their households, not to mention their bodies. So, what we're describing in terms of the war of the cosmos is coming back into alignment with what is. But if you're already a husband and already a father, already with a with a running household for better or worse, it's a giant process to come back into alignment if you're already far out of alignment. If your children, for example, are estranged or your wife is distant, um, it, it can be a very big ask. And yet that is the ask. What sort of advice do you give to men to begin to begin this journey of bringing things back into alignment, particularly if they're the only ones in the household that want to take things in that direction? Yeah, that's a great question and an important one to, to think about and address. I think the first thing is to get your own house in order. And what I mean by that is your own interior house, you know, your inner, inner life, you know, getting yourself into a, a, a place where, uh, you know, your, your own, uh, sort of, uh, the components of your own personal, you know, your own self are aligned appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the big things would be self mastery. Uh, if you can uh, acquire a greater degree, a greater degree of self control and self mastery, if you can expand uh, your competency uh, into new areas, uh, that those things cannot, uh, but produce a greater uh, or higher regard for you with other people. So if you know how to do things, people have to respect that, uh, particularly if those are those things that you know how to do are things they need done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <Yes>. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, and, and of course, when you find yourself in a position where you have uh, these skills uh, and you are in a position to help other people, then they're, uh, you know, in a, you know, then you can do that for other people. And then in return, you know, they can 
uh, hopefully respond the right way. But if you if you are, can keep your head, keep your cool in difficult situations, if you can order your own sort of immediate, uh, you know, behavior uh, in ways that are conducive to being uh, respected and uh, conducive to uh, getting things done, um, then I think that you can make progress uh, in the other things, these external things that have to do with your relationship with people that perhaps, um, you know, are not in the best place at the moment. So hopefully you can find uh, yourself in a position to command the respect of those people. Now, commanding respect doesn't mean respect me. <laughs> That's one of the quickest ways to lose respect, in fact. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what I mean is by the conduct of your life, people can't help but respect you. Uh, it may take wh- a while for them to really believe it, you know, particularly if you have a, have a bad track record. Uh, but hopefully over time, you can overcome uh, the things that you've done in the past that would make it difficult to respect you. But once you find yourself in a position where you uh, are even able to deal with the fact that maybe people are resistant or reluctant to respect you in a way that they can't help but respect, <laughs> you get my drift, mm-hmm. then, yeah. then you, you're making progress. And, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully in time, you'll find yourself in a position where you're able to see the, the household that you uh, are charged with caring for and leading uh, reflect that inner state that you've been working on, by, with God's help, of course. Of course, of course. Well, uh, I want to get to uh, your book about Tom Bombadil, but before we do, I just had one more one question because I have a lot of uh, a lot of women listeners as well, and uh, we're in this peculiar moment where uh, we just talked about men bringing their households into alignment, but we're in this peculiar moment where many women have woken up before their their husbands or their or their boyfriends even, and are the ones out there like saying, "No, this is not right." What advice do you give to women to to perhaps lead their husbands along? To, to into this because you know it can come from it can it can come from either direction. How do you what do women say to you and what do you say to them like how to get their their husbands to I guess say step up? Yeah, I think the, the the prayer life of a godly wife is remarkably effective or can be. And if uh, if she uh, simply takes uh, you know her concern for her husband to the Lord on an ongoing basis, he's going to pick up on that. <laughs> he may you know she doesn't need to say anything. Uh, but, uh, often, you know, uh, you know, just by how she responds to maybe his, um, you know, his sinfulness, frankly, uh, can do a lot to, to help a man see himself, uh, at the way he ought to, you know, what we, what we want to see happen is, is not just simply have, we don't simply want, you know, uh, you know, uh, a situation in which. Uh, an accusation is being made and the guy gets on the defensive, you know, that's, that's not going to take you where you want to go. But if you could find yourself in a situation where this guy is just ashamed of himself, I mean, <laughs> just ashamed of his, his, his way he's conducted himself and how he's treated people. You're at a, you're at the brink of, of something that could be wonderful. Um, and what, and what, what I think a wife ought to be praying for or a girlfriend ought to be praying for is that. And then, you know, um, you know, there, there's a sense in which, um, you know, this is a, a difficult thing to do, really difficult thing to do, to treat him with a measure of regard that he doesn't deserve, you know, um, because, 
you know, uh, there are a lot of jerks out there. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes we've been jerks, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and my wife uh, is remarkably gifted in this regard and has been uh, a great uh, help to me in, at certain points. Like when I, when I hurt my wife's feelings, I feel terrible. Of course. You know, I just, I feel like, man, I am a real jerk. <laughs> mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And that's where you want your husband to be sort of able to, to, right. to accuse himself. How could, how could I be so thoughtless? How could I do something as, uh, you know, uh, you know, as wrong as that? Um, mm-hmm. and if that, if that uh, occurs, he's, you know, not far from the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a certain degree of mercy, right? Like husbands are often told to show men are t- told to show mercy to those around them. It's not a popular word, but that's the sentiment. Sure. But there can also be a degree of mercy shown to men, like we're not going to be perfect, right? And uh, and certainly to be to be ridiculed or to be shamed or to be iced out or or whatever, you know, by the by the woman we love, that's not that's not necessarily going to be effective. And so there's got to be a degree of grace allotted to men for their imperfections and their, and their sinfulness. Right. Right. Yeah, you know, you know, sometimes guys can be hardcore jerks, um, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, that's not the case. What, but I am thinking about the, the situations that I have seen um, in which uh, a man has repented and uh, you know given himself to to shaping up, and it's usually not through nagging, <laughs> you know, uh, or haranguing or. Yeah, that kind of stuff. It's usually because the guy genuinely feels ashamed of himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are these are good men. You know, mm-hmm. Obviously, there are, there are not good men out there for whom you know grace is extended yeah. and uh, let's say overextended. But for right. for the average man, you know, who's just trying, mm-hmm. I think that I think that extending them grace is very important. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about you know heaping coals upon the head, <laughs> you know, of mm-hmm. the, of, of people. Uh, when you don't return in kind, you know, some, some, you know, wrong for wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that what that, what's that, what that, what, you know, what's going on there? Well, uh, what's being triggered uh, in the best sense is the conscience of that person. Mm -hmm. We're made in the image of God. That means that we, we possess with, you know, within ourselves a knowledge of right and wrong. Um, And um, what we want to see in people uh, is a, uh, a recognition of the right, uh, uh, what is right, and uh, a recognition of being in the wrong, and, and that it's not mm-hmm. just an exterior sort of thing that is being impinged upon them, uh, but it's an actual inner, you know, you know, uh, recognition that I'm in the wrong. I need to change. Mm-hmm. And some degree of mutuality when it's necessary as well, so right. that you know neither partner is bending the knee to the other that there's some there are circumstances where it's like no we were both wrong and we'll step into the space of reconciliation together yeah yep that's great so before just before we wrap up i I did want to ask you about your your new book about tom bombadil because i have many friends and listeners who are huge fans of lord of the rings and that's that seems to be the one episode of the books anyway that um that raises the most questions so i haven't read the book but i'm curious about your thesis and and what whatever you'd like to say about it sure well i'm glad to i mean i i uh I think that Tom Bombadil is an underappreciated character. Obviously, that's the case uh, since I wrote a book about him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the question is, is, what function does Tom have in the story? A lot of people don't know how he could possibly serve a purpose. But Tolkien himself in a letter said he did. He said, the reason I left him in the story is because he serves a purpose. And so that 
forced me to think, what could that purpose possibly be? And I think one of the things we see in Lord of the Rings is uh, a sort of a uh, an exploration of uh, the sin of of domination, Uh, and uh, in contrast to the uh, you know sort of the calling to exercise dominion. So. Like when we think about uh, dominion, I think a lot of people think it's just a synonym for domination, but it's not. Uh, domination is what a Hitler does or a Stalin, you know, someone like that. Uh, dominion is what we see with Christ. So there's a there's a distinction here that needs to be made. And I think in the Lord of the Rings, when we look at Tom, we have a picture of what true dominion looks like. And we can contrast that with the wicked characters in the story, Saran, Saruman, those, those characters, and how they endeavored to control everything around them. Uh, genuine dominion uh, is something that is exercised in communion with the people that are under your authority. Uh, control is different. You know? So, so I, I set up a couple of, of uh, you know, contrasts. One is between dominion and domination, and the other is between communion and control. So the dominator controls but doesn't commune. The one who exercises dominion is in communion with the ones that are subject to him. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, um, I had someone on my podcast a long time ago, Zach Small, who talked about the difference between dominance, dominant and domineering. Mm. And so you have dom- dominion, dominant, domineering. <laughs> and uh, right, But, but they, all, they all go back to the same root, which is dome or domus, which, right. is, which is house, which right. is what we're talking about. Right, exactly right. So how does, just real quick, how does Tom Bombadil exercise dominion or should I buy the book and, and find well, out well, by reading it? Well, I'm fine with talking about it because, you know, the two episodes that we see dominion being exercised by Tom are, you know, most clearly that when he saves the hobbits from Old Man Willow, the wicked, you know, willow tree that tries to consume the hobbits, you know, when he comes on the scene, you know, Mary and Pippin are inside the tree, <laughs> you know, and uh, then uh, at the, at the, uh, Barrow White uh, episode where we see the Barrow White, which is like a, a wicked ghost who has uh, the hobbits in the barrow, which is a tomb, and he's about to kill them. And at that p- point in the story, Tom comes to the rescue again. So in both episodes, uh, Tom exercises authority. In the first case, he exercises authority over the tree. And in the second case, he exercises authority over the Barrow White. So he's exercising dominion. But it's in the interests of the of the of the hobbits in both cases. It's not just Tom pushing people around and making them do what he wants to do. I think the interesting what always stands out to me about that episode is just how he he looks at the One Ring and just seems completely disinterested in it. Like, yeah. oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, the only, the only- yeah. That's a very that's a very important point in the story, and that, I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about that in the book. Great. Well, I'll be sure to uh, send send men towards the book for more. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Where can people go to find out more about you and what you do? Well, I mean, there is a website. Everybody has a website. And uh, it's crwiley.com. And you can find uh, links to the books there that I've written and, and, and interviews and different things. And then there's the uh, podcast that I'm a part of, the Theology Pugcast, P-U-G. And um, the, you know, I'm, I have a couple of friends that uh, are on that show with me, uh, Tom Price and Glenn Sunshine. And, uh, and those are probably the best places. And if you, if a person is in, uh, the Pacific Northwest and finds himself in the, or herself in the Portland, Oregon area, 
you know, the church I serve is actually in a suburb of Portland. Great. I'll be sure to send, uh, send men your way. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Chris. This has been outstanding. Well, I really appreciate it, Will. Thanks for having me on the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for sticking around. I have some exciting news. The Renaissance of Men is now on Patreon, which you can use to not only support the Renaissance, but get involved in new ways as well. I've crafted six tiers, each with escalating benefits I think you're going to love. At the three lower tiers, Tip Jar, Patron, and Friend, get exclusive news, members-only content like video essays, and submit questions for a monthly live Q&A. Then at the three higher tiers, get behind the scenes with early access to podcasts, plus participate in a monthly community Zoom call, and even get one discounted deep listening session per month. I've thought hard about what members of my community might want, and I'm excited to be able to offer this to you today. So head over to patreon.com slash renofmen and check it out. Also, since I'm new at this, I'm open to your suggestions. Message me on Patreon or email me at info at to let me know your thoughts. Once again, that URL is patreon.com slash renofmen. And thanks for being part of the Renaissance. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at renofmen. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.